Welcome to the Life and Language podcast. I'm Michaela Malberg. I'm a linguist. I'm interested in how we use language to tell the stories and create the narratives that shape our society, our culture, and our reality. I'm absolutely delighted that my guest today is Peter Stockwell. Peter is Professor of Literary Linguistics at the University of Nottingham. In his research, he's covered an amazing range of topics from sociolinguistics to surrealism. He's given talks all over the globe and his publication list is so long that I couldn't even begin to read it out. So let me just mention his world-leading and field-defining work in cognitive poetics that Peter is probably best known for. His introduction to cognitive poetics has already been published in its second edition in 2020. Peter is also an expert in science fiction, and that's the topic I'd like to talk to him about today. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. So your job title says you are a professor in literary linguistics. Can you just briefly explain what is this literary linguistics? That's, that's a terrible question to ask a specialist because the, the last person who can give a one sentence definition is the person who spends all their life doing it. So the, the, the simple answer is it's, it's sort of in, in the phrase itself, it, it's using linguistics to understand uh, the fabric of literature, I guess, is the simple answer. Uh, perhaps the more complex answer is that it's a recognition that literature is comprised and constituted of language. So the blindingly, obviously most effective and relevant and principled way of thinking about that is to use our current best knowledge of language and mind, and that means linguistics mainly, um, to try and explore how literature works. And that means not just how it works on the page, but how it works in your mind, um, how it works in the world. Hmm. And the blindingly obvious is, is quite, quite nice, isn't it? How often do we actually forget that language is so essential to literature in a sense. How, how did you decide on this subject? I mean, and especially a university career in this area. Well, that makes it sound like a decision. So I, I, I can't think of any Wasn't it? <laughs> where, where I actually decided anything more than a year or two in advance than it ever actually happened. So this is, um, I guess, I, I it goes back to being a student in Liverpool in the 1980s. Um, and I did what was called an English language and literature degree, but in fact, it was uh, it was principally literary studies and uh, the, the language component meant uh, historical language study. So we, we learned old English um, actually in a language lab with headphones like you would learn a modern language at that point. Um, and uh, there, there was very little linguistics in, in the course at that point. Um, And I, I, I was conscious of getting more and more and more dissatisfied with the way that literature was being taught, um, uh, because it, it seemed to me it was principally entirely biographical. Uh, and it was it was historicized, which was fine, but only to the point of the contemporary. So the, the point at which the text had been generated. Um, and I think that the final straw for me was uh, was attending a lecture that was supposed to be on the poetry of, of Alexander Pope. Um, And in fact, the entire lecture was on the layout of his garden in Twickenham. Um, 
and it was uh, I think it was the only lecture I've ever actually walked out on and, and I was I was far too polite to make a big fuss I just sort of slipped out the back and thought I am never going back um, and I think at that point I, I would probably have left, would have finished my English degree, but but I'd have, I'd have ended up doing something else. God knows what, but something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what saved me was was uh, uh, a course in stylistics that was had just been invented by the great Paul Simpson, mm-hmm. um, and um, it was like a revelation to me. You know, it was it was I, I realised at last that I hadn't got annoyed or upset or disillusioned with literature. What I become disillusioned with was the way that literature was simply an excuse for historical tourism um and and you know I was someone who was interested in history but I I I was got so annoyed about the fact that that here was the literary text in front of you and people wanted to talk about everything except that thing and what it was doing in your mind Mm. um so so I I fell into that uh and I think at that point I became a stylistician I was interested in style or rhetoric uh you know, I was interested in how language worked. And from that point, once you start, once you enter that cave and see all the, 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 the treasures in there, there's no going back, really, because um, it, it's, it's, like it's like a sort of secret code to, to how the universe works once, mm. once you figure out that, that this is what literature is. Um, so the idea now of looking at a literary text without thinking about its language um, is, is it, it now seems really bizarre to me. Mm. Uh, it would be a strange thing to do um, mm. yeah but it's also I think that, that you know I've been doing this now for nearly 40 years um, and I've never got bored you know I've never I've never never got stuck in one thing and thought oh this is you know I need I need to either do this in a different way or, or, or get out because um, it's just it's it's sort of infinitely interesting there's always another thing and another thing and another thing to be interested in and that, that that's probably the good thing as well. I mean, we could have picked, I mean, talking to you, there's a million topics I could have picked because of the infinitely interesting, really. So, but I thought one I really wanted to check in with you is, is the science fiction, because what I'm interested in in this podcast is storytelling. So storytelling in all sorts of shapes and forms. And mm-hmm. what fascinates me also in my own research and the work that you and I have been doing together on this is really this link between fiction and reality, because fiction is never just fiction. So, you, you know, it, there's always that connection. And it seems science fiction is a genre where this link is particularly interesting for all sorts of reasons. So maybe it would be useful to just start with a definition. So what what makes a story or a book or a film science fiction? You, you, you've asked the, 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 the million billion dollar question, of course. Exactly. <laughs> to, to, to define it. Um, I suppose that the, the difficulty is that you can't simply have a, a set of one or two criteria that say, no. oh, it's got those, that, then it's science fiction. So mm. there are very sort of prototypical central core things where if you came across them in a text, you, you would be hard pushed to say it wasn't science fiction. So if it was set in the future or if it was set in space or if it, it was focused on advanced technology that doesn't exist yet, almost certainly that's going to be science fiction. I mean, not, not 100% definitely, but, but probably would be. Um, but then there are lots of examples of, of things that people definitely think are science fiction that are set in the past 
uh, often the distant past, um, are set on earth, uh, mm-hmm. are set inside uh, individual houses even, um, or where the, 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 the future is maybe only tomorrow or next week, or, or, or the future is a version of today. Um, the, the, the great science fiction critic Samuel Delaney once said that, that all, all other literature is about the past and only science fiction is about the present. Because in order to write about the present, you have to think about what's next, um, and and I, I think there's a lot there's a lot to that. Um, I once did an experiment; it was a very informal sort of experiment a long, long time ago, where I, I had a, a huge list of things that were sort of things that you could find in science fiction, and there were there was stuff like ray guns and spaceships and so on, um, but there were also sort of psychedelic drugs and and uh, and social change and and uh, uh, sort of um, technologically driven fascistic government and things like that uh, sort of in in this huge list um and I, I got lots of people just to tick or cross whether they thought these things were associated with science fiction or not um and i also did a separate question where i wanted to find out if they were science fiction readers or not whether they read science fiction and it there, there were no right answers really to the to the tick or cross um but what was really interesting there was an absolute straight line correlation between people who read lots of science fiction who ticked more boxes. Um, mm-hmm. If you read lots of science fiction, you were more likely to see science fiction in everything, well, not everything, but, but more things. Whereas people who didn't read much science fiction had a much more limited, uh, I suppose, stereotypical view of what counted. Mm-hmm. So asking me as a lifelong science fiction reader, what counts as science fiction is, is I'm exactly the wrong person to ask because I, I see science fiction in almost everything. Um, that, that, that other people would would it then maybe um, be a good idea to say you know if you think about our listeners who maybe haven't ever read anything that is science fiction or anything that they thought would be science fiction have you got a recommendation as to what would be a good starter text you know if if, if there's one thing you should start with which one should that be and I guess Well, an interesting case is Ray Bradbury, the, the American uh, writer from the, the sort of middle of the 20th, early to mid 20th century. And Bradbury's thought of as oh, a science fiction writer. But actually, quite a lot of his stuff, when, when you read it, sort of once you're into his texts, um, you know, aren't, aren't necessarily uh, sort of what you would think of as, as uh, space battle type science fiction. Um, mm-hmm. so you're saying like, reading have you got anything you could yeah, maybe read for so us is Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles so it sounds science fiction doesn't it um, <laughs> you know and it's uh, it, it's probably in some ways it's not representative of science fiction because the writing is so poetic um, And I, but I think you know if, if, if you've never read any science fiction and you're worried about I don't know it's sort of hard technology or, or, or complex ideas of physics Bradbury's a good place to start because the writing's so amazing. So this is this is from right near the beginning of Martian Chronicles, quite short. This is uh, so it says February 1999, which of course for for the novel is is distant future, hmm. um, and it's uh, it goes like this. And the main thing about this, it, it's perfect doing this on a podcast rather than putting the words up because it, just listen to the sound of it. Um, this this could be I could be reading a poem out here, not not a, a paragraph of prose. They had a house of crystal pillars on the planet Mars by the edge of an empty sea. And every morning you could see Mrs. K eating the golden fruits that grew from the crystal walls or cleaning the house with handfuls of magnetic dust 
which, taking all dirt with it, blew away on the hot wind. Afternoons, when the fossil sea was warm and motionless, and the wine trees stood stiff in the yard, and the little distant Martian bone town was all enclosed, and no one drifted out their doors. You could see Mr K himself in his room, reading from a metal book with raised hieroglyphs, over which he brushed his hand as one might play a harp. And from the book, as his fingers stroked, a voice sang, a soft ancient voice, which told tales of when the sea was red steam on the shore and ancient men had carried clouds of metal insects and electric spiders into battle. It's just, I mean, every time I read, I must have read that passage, I don't know, a thousand times, literally a thousand times, and every single time you get that little bristly thing on the back of your neck because it's just such a brilliant, brilliantly written. And it's, you know, you can go and look at the alliteration and there's, there's a meter to it even if you, if you can rearrange the lines. Um, and even the even the, the, the ending of it where it takes you back into the past of history and takes you off on the war and the, the short little appositional clauses give way to this great long trailing sentence at the end. Um, so it's, it's, it's iconically doing what it's talking about. But at the same time, it's got all the sort of touchstones of science fiction. It's set on Mars. It's, it's got the technology. But the, the way that he describes the technology is not in sort of technological Hmm. words neologisms but you know um metal insects electric spiders uh the the fossil sea you know there's something um there's something sort of timeless about it as well as poetic about it um and it it just it of course what it does is it immediately puts you there you know hmm. the immersiveness of something like that is astonishing um hmm. and hmm. Uh, so it's, as, as a as a gateway to science fiction i would say ray bradbury Oh, no, I think that is one I absolutely now must uh, get on with. Because when you were reading there, I could have just listened to this, you know, much longer. I thought, oh, this is already over. Oh, no. <laughs> um, but you mentioned history there. Can, uh, th th that is an important um, topic to maybe look at a bit more closely as well. So you were saying, you know, when the book was published and also the history of it all. Mm -hmm. Is there something that we could say about the history of science fiction and how it has come about as a genre and a term that sometimes is associated with it is also pulp fiction which I found quite interesting how they hang together can you explain this for for us a bit yeah well science fiction was the original pulp fiction I mean it was literally printed on pulped low quality paper magazines in the 1920s in, in the US um, so it's uh, I mean that's what's where it's sort of trashy throwaway reputation comes from I think but even that stuff you know so even the very first elementary short stories and so on that were in uh wonder stories and and uh unknown and and um astounding magazines with titles like that um they were they were perfectly suited to their readership so often you know they'd be quite simply written uh they wouldn't have you know th th these are th things that are appearing at the same time as James Joyce and Virginia Woolf mm. were writing but they're a million miles from that stylistically um, because that's what their readership needed. You know, their readership were largely, I mean, I'm characterizing this very broadly now, but, but largely uh, young men, uh, probably with a technical education, but certainly not with a liberal arts education um, who, were, who were working in, not in graduate jobs, you know, but in, in technical or office jobs, quite a lot of people on the Eastern side of the U S who were, um, 
second language speakers. So, you know, weren't adept at reading English. Um, and what you wanted was a really good story, a real ripping yarn full of ideas. What you didn't want was fancy literary experimental style. Um, so, you know, as a genre, the, the pulps uh, and, and the, the slightly posher ones called the slicks, um, mm. they, they, were, they, they were perfect for their readership. Uh, and that gives you a thread of, of science fiction that runs through the 20th century. Um, but of course, science fiction is, is a much older tradition. It just doesn't get called science fiction before, before the, the 1940s, really, the 1930s. Um, mm. So what you, would it relate to before that, if you had to contact? Well, I guess, the... um, well, it depends how far back you want to go. So the, m most people set the, the, the beginning of modern science fiction with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which mm. is the beginning of the 19th century. And sure enough, that's got quite a lot of the tropes. You know, it's technology. It's 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 sort of not not possible at the time to to bring a body back to life through through electricity. Um, uh, you know, so it, it's it's got quite a lot of the patterns. But you you can you can go back further than that. You know, so so um, uh, Thomas Moore's Utopia, for example, or, or or even some you know the Tempest. You could argue is science fictional, and quite a lot of what in the late 19th century H.G. Wells called scientific romances. The romances bit gives you the clue that there's a sort of medieval tradition here. Um, mm. That You know, there's, there's an allegorical element to science fiction in terms of how things map across onto our world. Uh, even to the extent of, you know, classic science fiction has sort of tokenistic characters, just like Pilgrim's Progress does, you know. So I was just thinking of this funny. <laughs> There's quite a lot of science fiction critics. Uh, I'm thinking of Tom Shippey, for example, who started off as, or Edward James, you know, who started off as medieval scholars and got interested in science fiction or alternativity later on. Mm. I mean, think, think of Tolkien. You know, there's, there's a huge thread through from, mm. from medieval literature to uh, 19th and 20th century science fiction. Mm. Um, yes. And it, you can see a straight line. It just doesn't get called science fiction. Yeah. Yeah, it's in, it's in the labeling. And what I'd like to get back to, you just mentioned readership there. So you were talking about the Pulp Fiction and the kind of readers and the people this was speaking to. And um, it's sometimes said that um, science fiction can be a really useful tool for public engagement with science. So in a previous episode of this podcast, I talked to Alice Roberts, who obviously does a lot of public engagement with science and storytelling there is really important as well and especially to connect the past and the present now with science fiction it looks like we're taking the other direction don't we so we're connecting now the present with possible futures in what way can science fiction have a positive impact on engagement with science if we look at it like that well i think that there's you don't have to be a scientist to appreciate science fiction. I have, I have a friend, um, uh, Tony Ryan, who's a, 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 one of the world's leading chemists and, and uh, scientists. Um, and uh, I tried for years to convince him to like science fiction because he just couldn't get past the implausibility. Of it. Um, and I, I managed to find a couple of texts in the end that I think hooked him in. Um, mm. But the problem is, you know, that he saw, he saw the, all the impossibilities. Whereas, in fact, the vast majority of people don't really understand the science that well. And what science fiction does is put it into a story where the science is an element of it. Um, so the science, to a certain extent, is uh, of the science and the technology is, is, I wouldn't say peripheral, but it's sort of it's it's just part of the scene. 
And as soon as you get it in, into a narrative where you care about people or you care about the plot um, or you want to know what happens or it's exciting, you know, um, then then the science happens sort of just around you. It's just part of part of the, 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 the thing around. I mean, I think having said that, there's quite a lot of science fiction that's that's very doomy. You know, there's there's a lot of dystopian science fiction. Yes. But of course, that in a sense, that's positive as well, because you know, the, the, the Orwell didn't write 1984 as, as, as a means of escapism. You know, mm. he was writing it about 1948. He, he was writing it about his own time. He was, he was caricaturing certain elements as a warning uh, of, 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 of the politics of the time. Uh, you know, that, that, lots of that stuff persists. So actually, you know, some of the really miserable or apocalyptic or, or, or catastrophic science fiction and dystopia is, is 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 has a positive outcome, you know. In the and you can see this and think, yeah, you know, that is that looks like where we're headed. And if you yeah. think think of the the what's what's the film the the uh, don't look don't look up the sort of film came out a couple of, last year. It's a science fiction film, you know. It, it's set in the future. There's an apocalypse coming. It's clearly alleg allegorical. It's got all those elements, um, but it reached a lot of people uh, to talk. In this case, about about. Well, it was an allegory for climate change um, in a way that, you know, people wouldn't have gone to the cinema and watched a two hour film about climate change. Hmm. So it's, um, it can have a positive effect like that as well. Um, I think hmm. having said that, there is a sort of tradition in science fiction that comes again, I think, from its, its early 20th century technological roots that is generally positive about science. Yeah. So the scientist is often the hero. Yes, um, yeah. you know, the, and, and the more nerdy the scientist is, the, the bigger the hero, uh, the, the one who nobody else listens to or the, the one you can generally trust. And even yeah. if it's an evil scientist, it's very obviously that, that's, that's bad, you know, that's an evil scientist. But, but science itself is, is viewed generally very positively within science fiction. And I think quite a lot of the anti-science we've seen in, in across the world over the last few years, that science fiction stands as a bit of an antidote to that as well. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of a yeah a way of dealing with science that shows society how you might be able to deal with it if you if you wanted to. And um, I just thought when you were talking about the nerds and the science, there so something I've just been reading is on um, science fiction and espionage thrillers, and especially uh, Bond novels and films, uh, and how they deal with innovation and gadgets and what that might have to do with how society approaches innovation. I mean, well, you know, I, I'm a huge Bond fan, so I just have to ask, <laughs> is there anything to say about Bond and science fiction? I know you're a Bond fan. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I've always thought those bits in the Bond novels and, and the films more so even where, where, where he meets Q and is given a, a, a gadget. They're the real, they're sort of, I mean, Bond's not science fiction, but those bits no. are science fictional. Exactly. Um, I mean, some of it is based on, you know, sort of things that, that uh, the secret intelligence service was doing through the Second World War. So, you know, quite like like having cameras in pens or, or um, you know, explosives in the heel of your shoe and that sort of thing. Um, I think the thing with Bond's gadgets, I think, are really interesting is that usually they're plausible. So, you know, having, having an armed car with, with, with guns and oil and, and so on and an ejector seat, that's sort of OK. But I remember there was one... I think it was a Pierce Brosnan one where he, he, he turns up in an in, invisible car. And I think even, 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 even the scriptwriters knew that that was ridiculous because mm -hmm. the, the Bond, Bond looks at Q and says, oh, you, you are joking. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, the sort of knowingness to it 
um, that there are some things that are pretty, pretty much, well, given our current state of optics, they're pr pretty much impossible. Um, and I think there is that sense that a science fictional uh, piece of technology at least has to be believable, even if temporarily while you're in the text. And I think with the invisible car in the Bond film, even while you're in the text, it was unbelievable. Hmm. And the characters in the in the film didn't believe it either. <laughs> so neat, neatly metamodern, I suppose, uh, on the part. Yeah, of the and that is the connection between fiction and reality again, isn't it? I mean, yeah. uh, uh, another theme, you know, when you talk about believability, there another theme that is quite recurrent in science fiction is is obviously time travel. You know, and um, I've got a colleague who works on uh, time travel from a more philosophical point, point of view. And that's really quite interesting stuff. And uh, for me, with my interest in Dickens, when I hear time travel, I immediately think of a Christmas carol, obviously, you know, because you've got the ghosts there. And it's, it's quite effortless how Scrooge then visits the past, goes into the future. That's time travel. But um, but again, it isn't quite science fiction, is it? No, but it has the same medieval roots, doesn't it? It's a moral fable, you know. It's it's uh, and and the, the idea of, of sort of using that allegorically is is it's the same the same motivation I think as science fiction. It's just that the memes are different. So that the, there was lots of you know time travelled stories where you get to the distant future by falling asleep and waking up again. So mm. the, the whole European tradition of those going back through the nineteenth and eighteenth centuries. And of course, the, the 19th century is when people get interested in time as a thing, as an object, not just the thing that you're living in, you know, so that time is, is sort of separate from yourself. Um, I'm thinking, you know, I would put the very first example of that as Keats' Ode on a Grecian Urn, where the time travel is the object and you're holding it and then you go into it and you're in the distant past and then, then you're in the distant future and you don't really know where you finish up whether you, you, you know, you're sort of somehow in the urn, somehow in Keats's mind, somehow where you are. Um, and Keats is pulling the same Dickens trick. Um, but again, it's not, it's not technological. Uh, no. it, it's just, it's time is separate. Um, so what do we need if we want to make time travel proper science fiction time travel? I guess then you look, so, so H.G. Wells' time, the time machine is, time machine, is, yeah. is that right? Uh, end, end, of the, end of the century. And the difference is that the mechanism, I think, so, so Wells builds a machine. So there's a technological means of getting to a different time. Um, and, and, and of course, what's interesting about the time machine is he ends up in a place which is an absolute allegory of Victorian class structure. Um, so he ends up in the present, uh, in, in, allegorically, just with a sort of metaphorical overlay. This is what I meant at the beginning by saying that science fiction is about the present. Um, mm -hmm. The time travels about the present. You know, it, it's Scrooge goes to these different times in order to change his present. Um, and that, that's, that's what happens in the wells as well. But it's a, it's a machine that does it. And I think that the, the, the gadgetry, the, the, the mechanism, uh, you know, really it should have been called technology fiction rather than science fiction, I suppose, because that's, that's the, I suppose, the, the crucial difference that, mm. uh, between, between the ways that these different tropes are, are, are affected in a text, I think. The technology that is also something that connects really nicely to another thing you said before, because you mentioned, you know, when we talked about the public engagement and things like this, you also mentioned the climate crisis or climate change. You know, can we, you know, if we think about science fiction and fiction more generally as a way of yeah, developing creative ideas, thinking about possible futures, 
what potential do you see that we, we might be able to explore to help us think about creative solutions? Because we've gone so far with our climate crisis, you know, the little by little won't solve it anymore. So we really need some big ideas, something really creative. Could science fiction help us? <laughs> I think the sort of shock of shock of the warning has been there in science fiction. So J.G. Ballard's writing about, you know, catastrophic global flooding and climate change in the drowned world back in the 60s. Um, that one of my favourite science fiction novels is, is fairly recent, Stephen Baxter, and it's a novel called Flood. And it starts off with, with the sea level rising across London, and it doesn't stop. Uh, so the sea level just keeps rising uh, through the entire book until the entire Earth, right to the tip of Everest, disappears. Um, so it's, 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 it's not a very happy read, but, um, but the science in it, because uh, I've passed this by climate scientists and my, my, my physicist friends as well, said, oh, yeah, actually, what he's suggesting here is entirely plausible. And it, it's so that the status of science fiction as a, as a, as a dramatised view of the future, I think, as a warning, is, is really powerful. So it's one thing to say, oh, there is climate change. That's really abstract. You know, what you need to, to be politicians to be saying is that city will get flooded. These people will all die. Uh, there will be this many million people traveling across the world to get away from places that are no longer inhabitable. Um, half the species on Earth won't exist anymore. So where are we going to get our food and medicine from? So and that sort of what I've what I've done is to turn the abstraction of a climate crisis into a story. You know, I've made it real. I've, I've given it things. I've put it in a narrative. And that's what science fiction writers are really good at doing. Mm. Um, but it's not just the sort of the, 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 the doomsayer. You know, I think actually there's quite a lot of science fiction writers that, that are sort of positive about solutions to it. So um, I suppose the best example is Kim Stanley Robinson and his Mars trilogy. So um, it's set the red Mars, green Mars, blue Mars. Uh, and quite a lot of that is about, is about political discussion, uh, about how you terraform a planet to turn Mars into something where you can walk around and breathe the atmosphere. Um, but still think about the ethical problem that you've just vandalized the sort of wilderness of Mars in order to green it. Um, so mm -hmm. actually, he's, he's, and, and there's quite a lot of technological stuff in that novel because uh, it's, it's set on Mars in the future and the, the, you know, they're trying to change the climate deliberately. Um, uh, but, but of course, it's really all about how we deal with our environment here on Earth. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not just science fiction is about the present. Science fiction is about the here and now. Mm. All, all other planets are really Earth mm. um, in, in, in metaphorical form. Um, yeah. So there's the sort of positives in science fiction writing as well, I think. You know, oh, yeah. Solutions, yeah. Yeah, and that is the stuff we could really do more with, um, you know, taking that on board. So it's almost science fiction. I mean, I'd almost like to look at it as a way of you know it's a bit like scenario research isn't it only a bit more creative and a bit more poetic in the way you do it but it gives you that space to really think something through with all the implications and everything for people involved yeah, yeah. so I think that there's a danger there though you know you can be you can be a bit poor-faced about about the science fiction so you can say oh it's it's you know it's about big socio-cultural change or it's about language or it's mm -hmm. about cognition and thought or it's about the great themes of philosophy and and uh, for all time and then mm. the actual book is about you know uh, alien turnips taking over birmingham <laughs> so you know it's there's a, there's a big you, you, there is i think sometimes you've got to ground yourself again and think actually yes it can do all that 
but it's still what it's also doing is presented really good sort of ripping yarns you know just really mm. good stories uh, exciting yeah. page turner stories where where stuff happens and it's it's exciting and engaging as well as being sometimes philosophically profound so we then look um, uh, move from the philosophical profound maybe a bit more to the exciting um also so, some of the things that happen in these science fiction stories are also about yeah language really fictional language because you've got these strange worlds and because there is so much that really isn't like the real world you need to find ways of talking about it and you need terminology and you need to invent terms so so not everything is um what did you just say about the turnip you know the alien turnip that is a nice easy way to describe what's happening but some things are more complex can we look at some of that language a, a little bit have you got some good examples of you know language to talk about new technology or even new languages have you got some examples there yeah so i mean actually by by chance a couple of weeks ago we ran a, a, a symposium where we brought together linguists and stylisticians uh, and people who like to invent new languages conlangs constructed languages uh, and the conlangers as they call themselves Uh, spend all the time um, either just for fun or for money commercially uh, inventing new languages and some of those are just the odd word you know to, to give a flavor to somebody's novel uh, so you uh, could be a dialect word or a future word or a word for a piece of technology um, but in some cases you know what what gets invented is almost a fully fledged language uh, and you know if, if if the threshold of a fully fledged language is having native speakers then actually some of these languages get to that point as well. So, um, you know, the uh, if you go on Duolingo, the online uh, language learning uh, app, you can now learn Klingon or High Valerian uh, from Game of Thrones on as, as fully-fledged languages in Duolingo. You can There are two that, um, that are quite well-formed. We had um, David Pedersen and Jesse Sams, the... the, the the creators of the, the languages in Game of Thrones, uh, Dothraki as well, they invented. And it's it's a, it's a fully-fledged language. It's got a, a syntax, morphological rules, a tense and aspect system, vocabulary for certain things, pragmatic rules so that you know how to be polite and impolite in the, in these languages, um, and re really actually fully worked out in the same way that Tolkien did for some of his languages. You know, so the, the two two dialects of Elvish in, in Tolkien are... are are very elaborately worked out. Um, and then some of the other languages, like like Entish, the, the language of the trees, there's only sort of the odd word and it's gestured towards. But mm -hmm. yeah, it's a huge sort of, huge fun. Uh, and in, in simply in constructing these things for their own sake, yeah. um, that go way beyond just a simple neologism like a, a cyborg or a robot or the metaverse, you know, which all originated in science fiction before they had a reality in our world. Yeah, yeah. Here it's I guess the, it's the poetics again because it's um, the enjoyment of actually saying it, hearing it, trying it out, playing yeah. around with it, or so, 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 so the fun bit of it. Probably, some, of course, the science fiction it sort of predetermines the concept. So you know that it's it's I suppose the opposite of of what we linguists would call the Sapir Whorf thing, where hypothesis where. You know, you can you can think of a thing and the word for it at the same time, and then afterwards go and make the thing. So you know, the the remember in the '90s when everybody's mobile phone was like a flip phone that you flicked open and then and then talked into it. Um, I, I still prefer those to the big sort of slab of 
slab of black that we all have. They were nice. They were nice they were and yeah, handy. They, they were straight out of 60s Star Trek. You know, mm. they, were, they were your communicator device. Uh, you know, you just flick the thing open and, and you couldn't get beamed up, obviously, but you, you, the, the, the phone itself had its origins in science fiction. Um, mm. You know, the, 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 uh, the metaverse that, that various tech billionaires are trying to promote at the moment, that's, that's, that's a science fictional trope. You know, that, that comes from 60s, 70s, early 80s science fiction. The idea that you could live entirely in a virtual world um, and, and operate there and, and, and understand how it worked as well. Um, and I guess that is what some of the people who look at science fiction and innovation then are really concerned with in the sense of, you know, you almost warm up society in a way so, so that people can already get used to a concept or they, they, they feel they like it already. They haven't quite experienced it yet, but it yeah, isn't so alien <laughs> anymore to, yeah. to, to use that word. And, <laughs> um, um, you just mentioned and you just slipped this on in very, very briefly. So I don't know, but maybe let's look at this a little bit. You mentioned also dialect. And um, obviously, I know you've done a, a lot of work on accent and dialect and, um, you know, you've got really great examples uh, when you talk about this. I know this isn't quite the same as science fiction now, but, but it still links to it in a sense of imagining alternative worlds. You know, people who speak different dialects, people who, uh, who speak different accents, if you have them in fictional worlds and how they are the same or different from other people and how you position the reader. This is something to do with language attitudes as well. And I think you've recently done some work on this. Can we maybe get a little bit of a sense of what that was about as well? Yeah, so, um, it, well, you're right that, that, you know, other than just having the odd word, uh, quite a lot of the time, if, if, you, if you have your text in a dialect of the future, you, you the, the the sort of effect is that you you immerse your reader instantly in it and there's quite a lot of science fiction especially contemporary science fiction where it doesn't start off by saying oh here is a dialect of the future it just sticks you right in it mm. and, let, and lets you catch up and of course with quite a lot of that stuff you do tune in really fast because because you have to you know you just have to read it like that um and and there's there's quite a lot of that around now where even even um William Gibson's uh, Neuromancer, which is back in 1980, early 90, early 80s, 84, I think, uh, you know, is uh, it's full of of uh, what at the time was 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 very strange word choices uh, and and phrases about jacking into the to cyberspace and 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 living in the virtual environment and and um, uh, all of those terms now aren't unusual to us, and the reason they're not is because they were adopted generally in society. So we now speak the futuristic dialect that Gibson actually stole from Canadian bikers in, in the early 1980s. Canadian bikers? Yeah, mm. that's where he got quite a lot of the, the phrasing from. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah, so yeah, so then, and, and that just becomes the, the, the dialect of the future. Um, mm. I've got a really good example here, actually. If it's, it's of, of dialect. Oh, good. Oh, fantastic. Uh, so this is, um, well, I, I should say this is perhaps the strangest science fiction I've read for a long time. And it, it's, I suppose, because of that, it's my current favorite science fiction. So this is a, um, this is a, one of my colleagues gave me this. This is a, a, a book from last year, 2021, uh, uh, by uh, Harry Josephine Giles. It's called Deep Wheel Orcadia. So I, I almost don't know where to start about this. So it's a novel about an art school student called Astrid, who's returning from Mars. And she arrives on a deep space station, which is called 
deep wheel Arcadia. So it's, it's a big wheel in space. Um, so you think, okay, so far, so science fictional. But what, <laughs> what's strange about this novel is that it's, um, well, first of all, I'm not even sure if it's a novel because it's, it's written in verse. So it's, it's, it's a verse novel, I suppose. Um, but the, the whole ver- novel? Yeah. Uh, oh. Yeah, it's a long novel as well. It's like, you know, 200 pages. Um, okay. But to look at it on the page, there is verse at the top, uh, but the verse is written in, in, um, in Orcadian, which is the actual real dialect of uh, the Orkneys, uh, just north of Scotland, um, which is a derivative of, of Scots originally. So that, that exists. So the novel is written in Orcadian, because uh, that's just what, what these characters speak in. Um, and then uh, there's an there's a standard English translation as a footnote at the bottom of each page. Uh, but I, even that's not straightforward because the standard English translation is not very standard because some of the Orcadian words can't be translated into standard English very directly. So let me, let me give you a, a, a snip of it and you'll see what I mean. So if there's anybody listening to this who actually speaks Orcadian, I apologise for the pronunciation, um, which is probably hideously wrong. So this is two verses uh, from, from near the beginning of, of, the, uh, of the novel where Astrid is, a, is approaching the deep space station and this is what she sees out of the, out of the port of the spaceship. She watched the deep wheel approach grey-green, hid central station Tirlan yet, anent the yellow yotan, pidi bolas tedet arun hid's ring. Peer heeds trangwiolas we glims, and fund the gloop between the utbai and in, clossen sla, but only knew with this soon does she ken where she is. Now that's then translated like this. She watched the deep wheel approach grey-green. Its central station still... Now, the word in the verse is um, Tirlan, T-I-R-L-A-N, and that's translated uh, with all one word, turn, twist, world spinning. Oh. Translation of that word. Um, and then uh, anent is translated as against, about, before. And tedded is translated as rope, moor, married. Um, so you get the idea. It's it's mm. Or, or even... Um, Sla, which you think is slow, is translated as lax slowly. So he's trying trying to capture the the feeling of the word in the Orcadian as well as what it actually means. So what talk about multi-layered? We've got a prototypical science fiction story. It's actually a love story as well, um, written in Orcadian, which to almost everybody apart from someone from Orkney looks like an alien invented language. I, I, it's, it's, everything in this is new to me. Um, yeah. So it feels alien, but of course, and, and then there's this translation, which is not a translation. Uh, it's a sort of, it's another novel in its own right uh, with invented compounded words at the bottom that feels very, very sort of experimental to me. Um, uh, it's a sort of James Joyce, Brian Aldiss style uh, mm. going on at the bottom of the thing. Um, and at the same time, you get, you get sort of immersed into this, this world so that, it's not exactly that you can speak Orcadian by the end of it, but you absolutely do feel its texture, you know, by, by within a few pages of, of getting into this. Um, and the, uh, even the standard English translations at the bottom are really beautiful, just because of some of these clashes of words that are, that are compounded together. Um, so, it's, so... it's just brilliant. Um, and, and what I would say is that I don't think you can do that in anything other than science fiction. The, the, the license that science fiction gives you for linguistic experimentalism here, so language as a technology, 
but the framing of it to allows all of those things to happen all at once is what I think would be virtually impossible in any other genre. But it also gives, I mean, that was what I was just thinking. It's, it also really makes the reader work. You know, that isn't just a book that you could just, you know, read like this and then you fall asleep. That is, that is, that that's is... the weird thing. I think, you know, it's, it, it's comparable to something like Finnegan's Wake, where I think you really do have to work. But with this, you sort of tune into it and the story picks you up and, and rattles you on. So you sort of don't notice it anymore. Or at least you, you, you assimilate it so that it's, it's normal or it becomes natural. I think in a way that, that, that modernist experimentalism is constantly making you notice its own cleverness. Uh, it, it's constantly foregrounding its own texture. With this, I think actually, after a few, few pages, you're there, you're on the deep wheel Arcadia, you are speaking Arcadia and you understand that <laughs> you know, it's, it changes you as a reader in the process of reading it. Um, and it's, 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 I think there's a different function going on. Yeah. Um, Again, I think that it's 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 very science fiction either, you know, mm. taking you into the other world. And it's it's quite different from the one that you gave us at the beginning, isn't it? I mean, that oh, is, yeah. that is yeah. that is quite a change. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There is um, now. This, this is quite pr pr probably a bit of a you know hard change here, but I want to use a bit of the time that we still have to make a bridge or create a bridge between your work on science fiction and some recent work you have done on digital education. So, um, you know, with your colleagues, Rebecca Gregory, Jessica Knowledge, and Pavel Zudowski, you have just published the book, Digital Teaching for Linguistics. Now, um, this isn't quite the same as science fiction, but I think there are some interesting things to think about in this connection with the technology and the education. So what is this? project about so this actually it did have science fictional roots i suppose because uh did it well all my colleagues there together with um uh, my other colleague karina hart and, and emma hudson we uh, three or four years ago we were asked by the university to to um university of nottingham to to imagine what uh teaching would be like uh by say 2050 oh so here's your science fiction yeah yeah so uh and, and specifically you know how online digital master's education, postgraduate education would, would work. Um, and we, we had quite a lot of experience of this already, but it was, it was quite traditional. You know, here, here are some texts, talk to us electronically. You know, we've had webinars, but that was about it. So we were given complete blank license to go and Im imagine the, the sort of deep future of, 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 uh, of a course. Um, so essentially, that we, we took them at their word and, and we, we absolutely started from a blank. So we decided that, you know, if you were inventing a higher education course from scratch for all those people, the one thing that you know about those people is that they're massively diverse. They're all over the world. They have different needs, different ages, different backgrounds. There's no way you could design a course that standardized all of those people. So we started off with diversity as the driving principle. Um, so we got rid of the idea of courses or modules. We ditched the idea of assessment. We got rid of mark schemes. We thought learning outcomes didn't work for, for this sort of uh, forum. Um, we, we got rid for, for our purposes of, of sort of normal course progression. Um, and we invented a scheme. I mean, we, we stole all best ideas from around the world. <laughs> um, but we put together a scheme that, that absolutely is student driven. Um, that's uh, that students construct their own course to particular criteria. 
start to finish when they want, dip in and out. And our benchmarks were not, you know, the way that universities traditionally work. Our benchmarks were Xbox and Amazon and Apple and, uh, you know, uh, hotel booking websites. And so we wanted the technology to be really slick and really cutting edge and crucially really fast. So responsive within minutes, not within days or weeks. Um, and that the teaching could still be one-to-one, -one, but massively augmented by the technology that we had available. Um, so we pretty much got this together. And then the COVID pandemic hit and the world got locked down. And suddenly everyone in the world was punched forward about 20 years technologically. Hmm. As, as you know, many of us, you too, were, were, we, 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 we had to go online. All our teaching went online. And we were just about ready for it. I think if the pandemic had hit, happened two years previously, universities would have had to lock their doors and we couldn't possibly have run our courses. And we just about had the technology that allowed us to do lectures and seminars and, and familiar looking things. Um, and we were in a hugely advantageous position that we'd already been thinking about this for several years and we yeah. had it all ready to go. Have you, I mean, I'm really curious now because, um, you know, I, I ordered the book and it only just arrived at lunchtime today. So I didn't really have time to look into the details. So I'm really curious. Can you give us any examples, anything, you know, how, how do we imagine a course like this? I mean, I really like the idea of using the latest technology and, you know, thinking about good user interfaces and that stuff you know things that universities normally are really not good at if you look at the clunky old tools that people are used to when it comes to yeah. university context so can you give us some examples something we can imagine or visualize for us so uh, well imagine you're a student on this course so so there's some structural things so you can pretty much start at any point of the year whenever you're ready um, you can pretty much finish whenever you're ready as well uh, you collect small areas of study um, that aren't really modules because they're not a fixed uh, set of work. So we give you access to a topic. And if you're really interested in it, there's a, a lot of material that you can follow. And if you're interested in someone else, you can scale that down yourself and that's fine. Um, when it comes to be being assessed to get a grade for that, you build a portfolio of your own work out of everything you've done. So what you're really interested in, you develop and other stuff you don't. Um, we allow you to decide the format of your own assessment. So instead of saying, write a 4,000 word essay in stylistics, we say, show me that you understand stylistics. You choose how you're going to show us. Mm -hmm. So you might want to do an essay in a trad way. You might write a journal article. You might do a PowerPoint presentation. You might write a novel. You might sing a song. You might, you might do some creative out, sort of output. You might design a lesson plan. Uh, you might design an advertising campaign or a marketing campaign. The, the, the format, uh, multimodal, you know, in any way that you like, do a radio script, um, uh, do a podcast, you know, is entirely up to you. Mm. Um, so we, we separate. Also, out. I might even get some credit for this now. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So we separated those out so that the, the feeling for the students is, is completely different and centered on them. Um, but I think that the, the, the experience of it sort of day to day is that the production values we have on the material are really high. So, you know, you know what it's like in a university. Some, some lectures and seminars are really, really professionally and, and, and produced to a high level. And some of them aren't, you know, mm. some, some are not, not great. We, we don't put up with that at all. We, we have absolutely high bar of, of the, the quality of the material. Um, 
you know, that sort of we're aiming for better than broadcast quality and 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 the look and feel of it um is 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 really pretty good um mm-hmm. and we're constantly looking to, to 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 build the community as well so the students and, have all sorts of channels that they can talk to each other yeah uh, yeah that is um, what i wanted to get at the community as well because yeah. i can see how as a digital space um how that works but how do people actually communicate with each other and uh, you know you know the things that we've been uh, hearing a lot when we had to go online and stuff it was people really said they wanted to be in the room with others and they wanted to be there at the same yeah. time and you know how how do you deal with this because i totally think the digital space is the space to do this or you know while it's nice to be in the same room it isn't the one and only thing <laughs> so but we're on the verge of being in the same room so we've experimented a bit with with virtual reality technology you know so that so that you can well suppose you're teaching a course on surrealism instead of sitting in my office in nottingham you can sit in a cafe in paris in 1922 hmm. you can you can all sit around the table everybody have a coffee or an absinthe or whatever you want and 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 sit and either talk about or do some automatic writing um, hmm. and and you can be there Uh, and it leads to a whole different set of etiquettes. So, for example, if you come into a seminar room, you've got to not sit inside somebody else's body. But apart from that, you know, <laughs> very familiar. Um, and you know, we're, we're not quite there yet, but we we nearly are. And that sort of that sort of metaverse, I think, is we're really close to. Um, and it, what's I think what's interesting through all my my work in this is that if you want to see what the future looks like in 30 years, look at how the world was 30 years ago. Hmm. And that's the scale of the difference. And actually, you know, we, we focus on the differences, but quite a lot of what we were doing 30 years ago is still very familiar. You know, it's still interesting to talk to someone who spent their life thinking about things. Hmm. That's still interesting. Uh, you know, for all the the, the, the the discussions that lectures are dead and no one will do lectures anymore, lectures haven't died and people still like them. Hmm. As long as they're good. Yeah, yeah. You started off by saying it, it, this arose out of this idea of um, diversity, mm. and that is something is, that's another topic I'm really quite interested in. So diversity and equality and giving people opportunities that they wouldn't otherwise have, and also making life, yeah, generally every aspect of it more accessible to everyone who wants it. So without the gatekeeping, without the inequalities, have you already got any, I mean, this has been running for a couple of years now, have you already got any feedback or any insights in how this diversity aspect has been perceived on, or what it has done for the yeah. world? I mean, there's no question that we have a much more diverse student body on the online master's course than, than, than other parts of the university. Having said that, it's quite an expensive course internationally. So I'm not going to make great claims for it reaching into, uh, you know, underprivileged neighborhoods and, and, and mm. offering postgraduate education. So I think you've got to temper, you know, the, the sort of the, the idealism of it to a certain extent. Mm. But, you know, for example, I, I ran a, um, on the, on the back of our expertise, we, we ran a big international conference last year in June, uh, July. Um, four-day event, uh, four or five hundred people at the conference, uh, entirely online. Uh, you know, I, I know you were at some of this. Um, mm. And, we and it was a brilliant conference. <laughs> it was great fun, yeah, it was a nightmare to do, but we, 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 it worked because we didn't pull one of those off-the-shelf corporate uh, conference uh, applications down, which I think are pretty much 
atrociously designed for the most part. We designed our own thing uh, using our expertise from putting this course together so that it, it felt like the conference that we wanted. And what we got, what was really interesting was that this big association, which has been Parlour, which has been running Poetics and Linguistics Association, been running for 20, 30 years now. We had people coming to that conference who would never have been able to come to a Parlour conference exactly. if we'd had it physically in Nottingham. Exactly. And that's because of they couldn't afford to come or the politics of their countries wouldn't allow them to come or the, the, the politics of their countries wouldn't allow gave them no mechanism to pay the conference fee or the conference fee was too expensive or they couldn't get time off so we had people coming from parts of the world that had never been to a, a, a that sort of western or british academic conference um now you know that's that is a diversity it's it's a diversity of academics across the world but mm. i'm really proud that we managed to do that and mm. you know if we're going back to what people keep talking of as normal which mm. I don't really agree exists. Mm. Um, I think that sort of thing is what we've got to we've got to maintain. We've got mm. to keep that. Yeah, and also, you know, you you didn't even have to go that far in terms of the places of the world. But I remember sitting, you know, in our garden, and um, it, it was really quite good because uh, my son was on school holidays, and otherwise, I really would have been in a very difficult situation to say, "How am I going to do this?" It's school holidays, and, and and you could just do it both, and that was absolutely wonderful. And I think that that is something where the diversity comes in and will make a real difference because. Um, You know, you, you just mentioned this thing about going back to normal and that, uh, you know, that also takes us to, we always need to talk about the pandemic because kind of some people want us to believe it is over, but it really isn't quite over yet. Uh, but the pandemic, I mean, it was bad, is still bad, isn't over, but there was this moment. So, so this idea of where, you know, we almost had an opportunity to really rethink what life meant to us, the way we wanted the world, the way we would see society. And somehow we kind of missed this, didn't we? we in many regards, we missed opportunities that we had to do or create really positive change and radical positive change. So to me, this matters specifically in university context. This is why I'm so glad, you know, that you shared your experience of doing something that was totally you know, out of the box, something different, having the vision to do, to do this. But that was your university and not all places are like this. Not everyone has the ability to do this. And a lot of people just want to go back to this kind of normal, whatever the normal is. So I know digital education isn't science fiction, but sometimes I wish our education sector would be more creative, more forward-looking, brave, as well you know just trying to think something that you hadn't thought before so can I ask you um, what is your vision for the future of universities in general where where should we be in I'm, 10 I'm years time discussion a little bit because that I think I think you're right there's there's never any such thing as the normal because mm. that the normal would have changed without the pandemic uh, I think it just changed more and I think what but the, the, there's there is there is a virtue in the familiar, you know, and I think that's, that's when, when that gets fossilized, that, that leads to exactly what you've been talking about, the, the sort of, you know, fear of innovation or a fear of change or, or a, a sense that, well, this works okay, so let's keep doing it. Um, but at the same time, and, and actually you get this from most science fiction as well, if you're going to try and put a really radical 
interest and technological or, or theoretical idea in somebody's head. You can't do that at the same time as massively radical stylistic difficulty. Mm. So some science fiction is very pedestrianly stylized. It's very straightforward because it'd just be too much to cope with, with re really strange rhetoric and at the same time the cognitive overload of, of having to deal with the ideas. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's the future, that we keep we keep what's familiar, we keep what works, but we we, we embed the new things within that. Um, I'll give you a really good example. And, and so, you know, when I first started as a, as a, as a student and as a, as a doctoral student, um, quite a lot of academic staff had, had an assistant. Now, it was all often very informal. Sometimes it was a, a secretarial staff, but, but because pre, you know, people used to handwrite their books and get them typed up by somebody else. But, you know, but even, even informally where one of your postgrads would do bits of work for you, would like take the odd class, find some reading for you, nip to the library, uh, do a paper at a conference even, you know. So we, we, that was sort of informally part of, part of the deal. Um, that's completely disappeared. Actually, partly for good ethical reasons that it's, it's sort of exploitative. Um, mm -hmm. and it, was, it was often done on a, on a sort of quid pro quo favours uh, rather than actually people getting paid. But essentially, mm -hmm. for lots of reasons, that's disappeared. Um, and now your individual academic is essentially doing a lot of that work by themselves. Um, and rather than exploiting postgraduates to do that, the obvious answer to that is quite a lot of that work can be handled by AI applications, artificial intelligence applications. Hmm. Uh, quite a lot of what we do on a day-to-day -day basis is predictable or repetitive. Um, and it requires the expert, partly for the authority, um, and partly for the for the assurance, you know. But actually, quite a lot of that stuff could be handled by by a really good artificial intelligent assistant. Um, and I can see that happening actually pretty fast, certainly within the next four or five years. And it will, will only get better, um, mm -hmm. you know. And that and that can then, I guess, free us up to what was sort of normal in the nineteen eighties, when we had very small classes and you had lots of space to to, to go and think. Um, and you and you had people doing quite a lot of the the work that was a different sort of work, um, but that things like that sound sort of naive and idealistic, but they only are if you never try them. You know, if if you don't ever try these things, you'll never know. Um, I'd be I'd be quite ready to try a little AI assistant for all the repetitive work that I. <laughs> have to do oh fantastic oh let, let's leave it at that try out um, the uh, ai assistant um, that, that's a good one to end this show on because i'm afraid that is all that we've got time for today thank you so much peter for this absolutely brilliant conversation you've given us so much food for thought thank you thank you very much it's been an absolute pleasure and thank you everyone for listening until the next time